So right off the bat, I'm just going to let you know, this is a rerun, but like a, like a non-lazy rerun, partly because I'm writing and I'm recording some new hosting segments, which you are currently listening to, but mostly because I'm not just pushing play on an old episode and wandering off to go eat some peanut butter. What I'm doing is finding some old stuff that fits together and making a new episode out of it. Consider it kind of like adaptive reuse, except, you know, this show isn't a building, or something. I, you know what? I didn't think out this metaphor, but anyway. This show, Low Orbit, is a little over three years old. When I first started it, it was nearly impossible to do themed episodes as I just didn't have enough material to actually fit into even the broadest of categories. But now, looking back on it, there are actually similar stories from lots of different episodes. The ones you're going to hear today are completely different pieces that have one thing in common. They're all about music. We'll start with one from Mike Coletta. Back in October of 2017, Mike stopped by the studio studio, sure, to talk about a passion of his, the genre of music known as black metal. We talked about what exactly that genre is and the somewhat dramatic origin story of it all. Here's Mike Coletta with more. It's called black metal music and encourages devil worship and the desecration of churches. So I have a few um, acquaintances who are Satanists themselves, but they're not really, I mean, they're not really into this music. They're, they're into what jazz. Kind of <laughs> they're into jazz. It's the, it's the strangest thing. I am Mike Coletta. Uh, I have a blog called The Black Meddler, which is uh, blackmeddler.wordpress.com. I talk about my uh, obsessive love of black metal, and um, there are some philosophical ramblings, there are some uh, tirades and uh, things like that, but it's all within the vein of black metal. I often tell people I'm not an expert, I just have a soapbox. When I was in high school, like I was crazy into the alternative scene and had really no heavy metal aspirations outside of what MTV played. Um, and then one day when I was working in the mall at Sam Goody, there was, uh, there was Demu Borgir's Death Called Armageddon with a gigantic pentagram sitting on the front of it. And I swallowed hard, went in, bought it, and then that was really the beginning of the end. It was just so different from what else um, I had heard on the radio or what I was listening to at the moment that after that, I just pretty much dove straight in um, and listened to anything and everything I could get my hands on. Black metal as a genre is going to have to fit all of these different, you know, it has to have a look, has to have a sound, and then it has to have a theme. The band member is dressed completely in black. Um, black leather, black jeans, you know, combat boots, etc. They put on this this white makeup on their face called corpse paint, and then they usually draw like either darkened circles around their eyes or their mouth, or sometimes in rather elaborate patterns all over their face. They then, of course, will have usually down the arms and legs those sort of rows of spikes. Some of them as small as the little studs. Others, you they look like homemade 
like gauntlets that they have pushed nails through. So they're these big kind of, you know, know, spiky affair. I don't know how else to describe it. They, They look like, you know, sort of porcupines that are missing big sections of themselves. The other thing, too, especially for the Norwegians, they always set themselves out in nature, um, particularly contrasted with either the forest or with some sort of snow background. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's meant to be like a very aggressive kind of menacing look. I would say it has a lot of connotations or has a lot of connections to punk in that, you know, the leather jacket, the the combat boots, the kind of, you know, that, that I wouldn't, I don't want to say sinister, but definitely that like, you know, we don't care how we look. We know we don't look like you, etc. It's just the hair. You know, they don't they don't ever do the the mohawks. At least I haven't seen a black metal mohawk yet. Yeah. The, so the sound. Um, on one hand, it's this fast paced kind of. Um, the guitars have this. They often call it the wasp swarm. So if you get you know if you have bees in your backyard and you get too close, that kind of constant buzzing that they've mimic their guitars to have that same kind of sound. On the same token though, so they've got this really fast swarming guitar sound, but they'll often be this sort of mid-tempo pace. So it's not all blazingly fast, it's not speed metal exactly. Um, it actually has it has some, um, some pace to it. It actually has some, almost some discipline with how slow it can it can go sometimes like what i was saying earlier i think it's the most dynamic of the groups or of the genres because it doesn't have to you know doom metal has to be slow like speed metal has to be fast death metal has to be technical like black metal doesn't have to be any of those things it can be any of those things doesn't have to though satan is obviously a theme so is this sort of anti-Christianity. Paganism is a big theme, and it's sort of all in this, this, this contrary spirit. So I would almost say, in my opinion, and I talk about this a lot in my blog, rebellion is the theme of black metal. Like, kind of like what Marlon Brando said, you know, what are you rebelling, what do you got? That's pretty much it. So I, I really think that black metal's, at its core, is about rebellion. And it's about the emotion of that rebellion. They don't often write songs about how they would burn a church. They rather write songs about the reason why they would burn the church. The entire movement, the the music scene, its biggest punch was the Norwegian scene um, in the early and mid-90s. Bands like uh, Mayhem, Dark Throne, Burzum, a whole bunch of others started uh, burning churches, Um, a few murders were even linked to black metal, Um, and it wasn't just in Norway. Norway was kind of the first to do it, but Poland had a series of church arson arson, um, attacks, so did Germany, so did Sweden, so did England. This is the type of music believed to be responsible for a wave of attacks on churches in Northern Europe. Called black metal music, it's overtly anti-Christian and synonymous with satanic worship. This church in Bergen, Norway, was burnt to the ground. Truthfully, within the Norwegian scene, it was just two guys. It was the lead singer of Burzum, Varg Vikanes, and it was the um, lead guitarist of um, Mayhem. It was Euronymous. Both of them, more so Vikernes, really believed had this these strong anti-Christian sentiments. And so, in particular, um, he targeted the um, Norwegian um, stave churches, those old wooden 
um, Viking churches. So they really targeted them because they they saw it as like an adulteration of their culture. Um, so they, he, I should say he, really had this anti-Christian um, sentiment to him. And so for him, I wouldn't even say that he was Satanist. He was just anti-Christian. Um, but since they, they went with the whole um, imagery of, um, you know, dressing in black with the, the white corpse paint, um, on their faces, you know, the, the the spikes all up and down the arm, and of course, inverted crosses, um, inverted crosses that were lit on fire, um, pentagrams, all this stuff. It really, um, it gave this look of overt Satanism. And then, of course, when Vikernes, um, I think he's responsible for burning close to 11 churches, but I think Norway, which had the highest number, lost around 47 churches. Um, so, um, it wasn't again, full on Satanism, but it was definitely this anti-Christian sentiment. Um, after a while though, it sort of switched where Vikernes and Aronimus said, the only way that you're ever really a true black metal band is if you go out and burn a church. So a lot of these newcomers, these new kids who want to be accepted by the, this group had to go out and burn churches with them. So it soon be turned into a ritual of, of a rite of passage. The lead singer of Burzum killed the lead guitarist of Mayhem. It, it really boils down to just a feud that they had. I think someone owed someone money. Um, they were having, you know, fights about who was going to release what on their label. I mean, really, it's like, when you actually dig into it, it's it's not terribly exciting. Um, Vikernes uh, accused Euronymous of owing him some money and that they weren't going to release their album until he gets his money back, so he goes over. He claims that, you know, he stabbed him in the head um, in self-defense, but then he was also stabbed 30 more times. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, that it's, it's self-defense, but really, like, um, when that happened, not only did it within the scene sort of make Euronymous this saint-like figure, this this martyr of black metal, um, but that's when it really, for the mainstream public and for the press, like hit the stop button because now this is something we need to take seriously. There were a few other murders. Um, there was a murder of a groupie down in Germany by a black metal. Um, I think it was the drummer. So, I mean, there's just been sort of isolated incidences here and there. None of them have ever been sort of like ritualized as a part of a satanic ritual. Um, but just given with the whole image that they had put off, plus the church burnings, now there's murder. My God, we have to put a stop to this. I kind of think after the the second wave, after the death of Euronymous, after the you know um, imprisonment of uh, Vikernes and all of the others who had killed people, um, the scene just kind of it it morphed into well, it became mainstream. I think was the real thing that probably killed it <laughs> is that it actually became profitable. Black metal in Norway actually can win Grammys and in Sweden as well and has. So I think. Probably that's what's killed it more than anything else. I'm sure the, what was it? Was it Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols? I'm sure he probably has a lot to say about Good Charlotte, but, you know, there was nothing he could do to prevent it. And I think the same thing is true, you know, that that if you were to ask Fenris of, of Dark Throne, 
you know, he would have loved to have stopped um, some of the bands that are now black metal bands. But, you know, that's one of the things I think after that big, huge surge of energy that, you know, became violent and, and deadly, life finds a way. So it found its new way in in the mainstream. So and that's where I think black metal thankfully still has a saving grace because a lot of I mean and even recent groups that are still producing black metal um, it's pretty it's good so they still have like there's still a spark of creativity in there and it might not be the same thing you know it might look different or even sound different to some way but it's still it's not like uh, you know this black metal used to be cool back in the day but you know I mean and there are some bands where you think like this is not for me but for the most part I think it still is hopeful because there still is a there still is that creative element to it um, and even though you can make it mainstreamed I'm not I just don't believe it can ever really be mainstreamed Mike Coletta is the author of the possibly defunct, hopefully not, blog, The Black Meddler. That's M-E-D-D-L-E-R. Defunct or not, there's some really good writing around this subject of black metal, so you should go check it out anyway. I'll include a link in the show notes. Our next story is actually the first one ever featured on this here little program. And as a former record store clerk, there's a wistfulness I get whenever I hear this story. It's from my friend Paul Epstein, and it details the experience of being behind the record store counter and buying somebody else's records. Hey, this is Paul Epstein. I own a record store called Twist and Shout. I've been in the music business for almost 30 years, and in that time I've bought a lot of used records. Inside many of these used records, I have found a number of items. And there are items ranging from the most personal, private things you can imagine to large amounts of cash, drugs, photographs, private notes, all kinds of things. Uh, Early on in my career, I started saving these items and putting them in a file called Found. And here... 30 years later, I've started to amass these into some kind of order that makes sense to me. So in this podcast, I'm going to tell you about some of the items. I'm going to call it the emotional wallet. That's what records were to my generation of listeners and uh, the generation preceding me and probably the generation after. To people of my generation, when you bought a record and put something in it, the expectation was that this was going to be there forever, with you for the rest of your life. Records were such an important and emotional and personal part of our 
self-identity that it seemed like anything you put there would always be there. It was a wallet for your emotional needs. I, I say this because over the years, as I've found items that have fallen out of records, I've recognized that these were things that you would never in your normal day-to-day life want anyone else to see. They're very personal things. So the expectation was, I'll never not have Cat Stevens' T for the Tillerman album. I'll always have this exact album in my life so I can put things in there that will always be there and thus readily accessible to me. As we know, time changes adults and your priorities change. And as we also know, technology has changed. And therefore, there is an entire generation of secrets hidden away in records. As these records are sold, they start to come out and the secrets are then revealed to people like me who are lucky enough to see them. I'm gonna tell you about uh, a recent purchase. This happened just in the last year. And in this purchase, a a gentleman, uh, middle-aged, I would say in his uh, late 40s to early 50s, came in with two boxes of records. And he was, uh, I would say, he looked like kind of a surfer dude. He, he looked like um, maybe an elderly manager of a Ron John surf shop or something like that. You know, uh, he had been probably at it too long. And, but he had like feathered blonde hair, a la 1979. He had a white puka shell necklace and a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, and, uh, you know, a moderate tan. But he also was uh, slightly portly. So he was past his prime, but he looked like he had at one time taken a great deal of pride in his youthful vigor and manliness. So I start going through his records, and he starts looking around the store. As I go through them, as often happens items start revealing themselves to me from inside these records. Various notes and uh, drawings and things that he had. But inside one record, uh, particularly, and I believe it was uh, Elton John, uh, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, falls out a Polaroid. And in this Polaroid is a young man, I would say he is... 17 or 18, no more than 20, just out of high school or just into college. And he is in repose in a bedroom. And the bedroom is, let me back up and tell you, when you start finding these items, you become a detective and you start looking at them and trying to determine what year it was, what the circumstances were, and all that. And so I, as this, when this picture presented itself to me, I started being a detective with this emotional wallet, and I started looking at it, and there was the, the room he's lying in is uh, wood paneling a la the mid-'70s. You never see it anymore. And on the wall is a poster for the rock band Renaissance and their album Azure D'Or, which came out in 1979. So I am placing this photo to the late 70s to early 80s, 79 or 80. And this young man 
uh, is lying on this bed. And did I mention he's not wearing any clothes? Uh, in addition to this, he has very, very skillfully moved the blanket to where it is obscuring just enough of his private area that this is not an X-rated picture. It's a hard R or a soft R in this case. Either way, it's a very thoughtful picture. He's in a kind of come-hither pose, lying back on this bed, and you can see quite a bit, but not everything. It's a Polaroid, so obviously somebody took this picture of him. I'm wondering, was this a girlfriend slash boyfriend who was getting ready to go off to college and needed a visual reminder of what they'd be missing? Was this him saying, take a picture of me so I can have a record of how amazingly great I look at this period in my life? It's hard to know. As often with these situations, more questions are given than answers. But it's a fascinating one. So I can continue going through the gentleman's records. I come up with a stack of things I'm going to buy. I should also mention I had spirited the picture away. Whether I'm going to get this record collection or not doesn't matter. I'm getting this picture because this is part of my detective work, and it's going to go in my found folder. It's part of the theory of the emotional wallet, records where you put things that you would never expect anyone else to ever see. And then he comes back to the counter, and I tell him, and he says, okay, fine. Suddenly it hits me. This is the guy. This is 27 or 8 years later, the same chap who's now a middle-aged dude who looks also kind of similar, but not near, you know. So many things were brought up by this. The passage of time, aging, ego, death of beauty, uh, the death of intimacy. All, all sorts of questions come to mind, and it goes from being... You may think you look at him and have kind of a snicker. It's not that at all. It becomes an incredibly poignant moment when you're looking at someone in two phases of their life based around one thing, which is music and records, and how their life has sort of revolved around it or has stopped revolving around it, and they've given up on the emotional wallet and forgotten what they left in it. And here he is selling it, and here I am, looking at it and pondering the gaping maw of the universe and the passage of time. And that's what it's like working in a record store. This has been Paul Epstein. Thanks for joining me. Paul Epstein is the owner of Twist and Shout Records. You can read more of his writing at Twist and Shout's blog, The Twisted Spork. Also, they are open for business, so you should head down there and you should buy a record or two. Links in the show notes. Finally today, we have one of my personal favorite stories that's been on the show. It's a great piece of writing from semi-frequent contributor Marie Case. We originally aired this story back in December of 2018. It's a story about the life and work of musician Judy Sill, 
Bodies are private, performative meat shells. They hold cancers and desire and pain and joy, and sometimes other bodies too. I first realized I had one when I felt pleasure at three, one of my first memories, and also when my mom's shape changed before my little sister was born. I don't know anything about your body unless you tell me. Even if you don't use words, and even though I'll give you water, food, and aspirin anyway if you have a headache. If some bodies remain, others must not. I feed myself. I believe in ghosts. Another thing I know is how to hear Judy Sills' voice. Ed gave me two of her albums, and right now I listen to them on my way to work. Outside the windows, I see mountains, sky, little stands selling fruit and vegetables. Usually I am drinking lots of coffee very quickly, crumbling toast in my lap. Judy's voice needed her body to be. Her body isn't here anymore, but its sounds are, somehow, because I can press a button and fill my ears with them. In Judy's absence, in the absence of someone I never met, I feel more myself. I am trying to be as clear as possible here. I don't think any of this is obvious. I listened to Judy Sill when I lived in Indiana, too. I moved there for college, almost 15 years ago, and I loved her voice because it made me understand my body differently. When I moved to Indiana, I was weighted by my body, which I wasn't allowing to bleed. I thought it must be someone else's because it felt so wrong on me. But when I listened to Judy, I didn't want to go put on a binder and go win bruises at a show. I wanted to sit in a church and gobble light. I felt released. She sang about crayon angels and enchanted sky machines, lambs, crowns, and cosmos. Not white boys like Bikini Kill did. Judy wasn't binary at all. The very first time I heard her, though, was on a mixtape Rob made for a girl he liked. He sent me those tapes, too, because they were good, and it took him a long time to make them, but also in case of heartbreak. He didn't want to lose the songs. We cared for each other in this awful, tender, childish way. I write about Judy's body by writing about mine. I need my body to hear hers, my ears, the ringing they have sometimes. Some people listen to Judy and never hear ringing. Anyway, the song Rob picked was Jesus Was a Crossmaker, which is kind of a terrible song to put on a tape for your crush. Sweet silver angels over the sea Please come down flight and for me It's about a stranger, abandoned and a heartbreaker, who sings to his lover, then freezes up and smokes off. Judy wrote it for J.D. Souther, a Texan who put her heart through a paper shredder. Rob's logic, I guess, was that he knew how Judy felt. He'd never be that guy. I want to ask Judy, do we have to fall in love with everyone? And if we do, how do we grow old? 
Sometimes I would like to be old with lots of lovers. I would like to have this wisdom, this body. Judy Sill, a beautiful name for a first album by Judy Sill, came out in October 1971 and features Christian mystic lyrics, Baroque pop, multiple overdubs, and piano. Fuck, man, she's school for all of us, Souther, who wrote songs for the Eagles, told Rolling Stone. I found her. I saw her. I tell the magazines. As a writer, I listened first to Judy's lyrics, though later and for the first time, I loved how the multiple overdubs of her own voice, mirroring, braiding, climbing, show her growing confidence, or at least her desire to take space, to make it. If Judy could, then I could too. I could listen and stay. But I think it will soon, so I sit here waiting for God in a train. Her lyrics are shimmered, spacey, image-heavy. For example, Crayon Angels features God in a train, the astral plane, magic rings turning fingers green, dead mystic roses, and phony prophets. Guess reality is not as it seems, so I sit here hoping for truth and a ride. What hit me here was the idea that images, which need space to be like bodies do, can communicate, can connect with something, the church, punk shows, even if they don't agree with all of it. If Judy could cop language from church and put it in a non-church space, then both these spaces must exist. Time must be happening. Duality. Bodies can change. Listening to Bikini Kill taught me to carry knuckle rings, taught me to believe that if I let my body be a woman, then at some point I'd be attacked, like being caught in the rain. Listening to Judy Sill taught me that flux and love are real too. I still listen to both. In Indiana on the early internet, I found a video of Judy singing her song, The Kiss. She sits at a piano, her hair heavy and straight. Her face looks like a rodent's and her eyes look beyond. I wanted to sit on a hood in a parking lot and read our horoscopes together. Since she was dead, I researched her life. Judith Lynn Sill was born in October in Oakland, 1944. Her dad, Milford Bun Sill, owned a far and imported exotic animals to act in movies. Both he and Judy's brother died in dramatic accidents before she was 10. Her mother, Anita, remarried. She married a man who helped animate Tom and Jerry. Judy learned to play piano when she was still a kid, and when she was 17, she married for just a year to Larry, who died taking the Kern River in a rubber raft while he was stoned. Around this time, Judy started robbing banks. The first time she was so nervous, she said, this is a fuck up, mother sticker. She never hurt anyone with a gun or fists, but was caught pretty quickly and hired a lawyer using her inheritance from her father's death. The lawyer won her extenuating circumstances, so Judy went to reform school instead of jail, where she learned to play religious music and the organ. 
I began to suspect that certain songs evoked certain emotions, she told Disc and Music Echo. I felt her. Certain songs I never danced to, ever. Once free, Judy found work in a saloon playing the piano. When they found out her age, they fired her, and then she took up bass. She married again, and her husband, Bob, took heroin, so Judy took heroin too. She stopped playing bass, almost died, was caught and arrested again, and once she was freed, Judy decided to use all the hungry monsters and become a great songwriter. This, to me, is the mark of new life, a new light on an old body. She told NME her three main influences were Pythagoras, Bach, and Ray Charles. She always wanted to harmonize with someone but couldn't find anyone, so she decided to do it with the piano instead, with her own voice, from her own body. If I could talk about religion, said Judy, I wouldn't need to write songs about it. This was new too, aiming for harmony. I knew Rip It Up and Start Again. I knew Chicks on Speed singing about girl monsters, Hedvig Schmidt's surgery, and Wynne Greenwood invented Nikki and Cola. I hadn't thought about refusing to cut. Later, I read Susan Stryker on Frankenstein and saw Hans Schurl's Dandy Dust and thought again about cutting, but anyway. Another important part of this story, as I read more and more about Judy, was realizing that my life wasn't hers. Our bodies are different. I was trying, am still trying, to figure out mine, and mine is not hers. She figured hers out as best she could. Judy wanted to be famous, and she talked about being famous in a way that would have been fine if she was a man. But she wasn't, so the newspaper said she was selfish. Judy Sill was the first album on David Geffen's Asylum label, just before debuts from Jackson Brown and the Eagles. Their successes soon dwarfed hers, financially speaking, but even so, she had the cover of Rolling Stone, though by then she was talking shit about Geffen. She was falling out of love with Souther. Or maybe she never fell out of love with him, I don't know. When I first met Geffen, I thought he was some kind of knight in shining armor, you know, Judy said. But I didn't understand the other things, the things that made him such a ruthless businessman. Love and money and bodies. When Asylum released Heart Food in 1973, it flopped too. After that, Judy went back and forth from Los Angeles to Mill Valley. She had a car accident and started using heroin again for the pain and selling sex to pay for it. A man she picked up at a restaurant on Melrose said they went back to Judy's place and there was a mural-sized portrait of Bella Lugosi, a gigantic ebony cross, and candles everywhere. He says he didn't realize how high she was right away, but of course they still fucked. Of course he still listened to her read him Alistair Crawley and mystic manuscripts. Here too are bodies and bright paint at the center. I don't know what happened because I wasn't there. I listened to Bikini Kill and I think I know. Soon, this guy said Judy turned into a serpentine cadaver, a huge gray reptile curling up on the comforter, and so he left. Which was weak, as Judy wasn't, isn't Medusa. They were just really high. This makes the body shimmer like a song can. When I first heard this story, I didn't know to wonder if Judy got off too. Judy Sill died in a trailer park when she was 35. The night I read that, I was alone in my apartment, which had ghosts and a pink tile bathroom. Maybe it still does. I like trailer parks because people I love live in them. 
I took Judy's sill and I hooked it up to my cheap drugstore speakers, which glitter, and I lay on the floor, one speaker face down on my chest. It was half a ritual, but I listened until I fell asleep. Then I woke up and made coffee and I drank it and I laced up my shoes and I left the apartment for work. My life felt a different bright, like I was living, walking through space after something happened. One star remains in the false darkness. Have you met my man on love? One truth survives death's silent darkness. Have you met my man on love? No sorrow is like yours, my friend. No silence. Maureen Case is a teacher, writer, and editor in Denver. She wrote the novel See You in the Morning and the poetry chapbook Tenderness. Maureen has an MFA from the School of Art Institute in Chicago and a PhD from the University of Denver. She teaches full-time to 8th graders and part-time at the Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics and the Denver Women's Jail. Maureen is a legal observer with the National Lawyers Guild and volunteers for a community response team supporting queer and trans survivors of violence. Previously, she lived in Chicago for a decade, where she worked and wrote for places like Pitchfork and the Poetry Foundation. She is a former birthday party clown. She has a new novel called Tiny, coming out in October of this year, and we will have links to all of this, of course we will, in the show notes. By the way, co-host and producer emeritus Ryan Connell was with us on that first story. He's been gone from this show for a while, but he will always be missed. And that's it for this adaptively reused episode. I am your producer and host, Josh Madison, and I promise there is a new episode on the way very shortly. I am editing it as we speak. But in the meantime, you can reach us, us, sure, me, someone anyway, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, on the website at loworbitpodcast.com. And of course, we have an email, which is still, for some reason, denverorbit at gmail.com. I guess I'm too lazy to change that. But anyway, those are the ways you can get a hold of us. And we will talk to you very soon. Music do you think the devil listens to? Soft jazz. Soft, soft, yeah, soft. Like Kenny G. Kenny G. Yeah, yeah. What kind of music does God listen to? Ska. <laughs> ska. That or or Icelandic. Icelandic traditional. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Mighty mighty boss. <laughs>
Good Charlotte. <laughs> yeah, he's a big fan of late 90s ska and punk. <laughs> really. Like, like, The Offspring is really, that was yeah. the peak. Yeah. That was the peak. Yeah. He loves that pretty fly. Yeah, Dexter yeah. Holland could pretty much, like, kill anyone, and yeah. he's still coming to heaven. Yeah. yeah. Come on in here. Come Mall, on. Mall punk is his favorite. Mall genre. punk, yeah. <laughs> That's what my friend used to call it.